Good morning, Grace. This morning's scripture comes from Romans 12, verses 9 through 16. So if you could find your way to Romans, please. And if you would like, please use our Pew Bibles. And in the Pew Bible, you would turn to page 948. Page 948. Romans 12, 9 through 16. Romans 12, 9 through 16. And it reads as follows. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This is God's word. And may those who read it, hear it, trust it, and obey it be richly and abundantly blessed. Amen. Romans 12 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. So this morning, we want to rejoice with Jim and Libby Caldwell. These flowers here were placed in honor of their 56th wedding anniversary. So, congratulations to Jim and Libby. There they are. Praise God for his faithfulness in our lives and in our church. Today we continue in our summer series called Exploring Christianity. Exploring Christianity. We've been looking at what Christianity, what Christ, the Christian faith teaches about things like the Bible or identity or sexuality, uh, the church, uh, even eternity. What do we believe about heaven and hell? And we've covered a lot of ground so far, and there's two more weeks left in the series. Uh, if you got the email on Monday, uh, it said that we were, I was scheduled to preach on Christianity and science. Uh, and if you know my background, I love science, and I ha have a science degree. Uh, but as I was studying and researching over the last few weeks, I realized that topic was better suited for a different setting. Uh, something that we can kind of dialogue about, maybe even a seminar. So I'm still working on that, but today, as I was talking with the pastors, we realized there was a more pressing topic that keeps coming up over and over that we need to address uh, in, as we move forward in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of the craziness of life in our world, and that is Christianity and community. Christianity and community. What do I mean by community? First of all, uh, I mean by community a group of people who share something in common. That would be a simple definition of community, a group of people who share something in common. For instance, we might speak of community in terms of where you live. 
So if you live in Bowie, the, there's a, the Bowie community, right? The people who live around you. We share a common bond that we live here, the, or, or the Crofton community, or the Annapolis community, right? Where you live, there's kind of a bond there around those people, or where you went to school. So I went to the University of Maryland, and so there's the University of Maryland alumni kind of community, people who went there. I have a bunch of friends I, I hung out with actually just yesterday, and we still have this friendship, and it all was forged because we went to the same school. Or it could be a shared interest or hobby like golf or, or, or music or whatever it is. These communities share something in common. And what I don't need to convince you of this morning is that all of us are wired for community. We are wired to feel connected to other people. No matter if you're a Christian or not, you have to admit we all want to belong. We all want to feel like we belong to something beyond ourselves, to a group of people who love and are committed to us. We all want to feel like we are accepted. And given what the world has gone through in the last 18 months or so with COVID, it's more obvious than ever that we long to be connected and we are starving for it. Some of us are seeing friends and family we haven't seen for over a year and we're just seeing them for the first time. We are starving to feel connection because we've been so isolated from each other. Even now, some have still been isolated and still being cautious. So if that's true, if, you, if it's already a given that we long to be in community, why are we talking about it in a sermon? What's unique about Christian community? Here's the thing. You see, to, be, to belong to any other community, almost any other group today, you have to share something in common that is immediately recognizable. Like how you look, or what you're interested in, or stage of life, right? Mom's group, a seniors group, right? There's, there's all kinds of groups for all kinds of people, all kinds of interests, and those are all fine and good kinds of community. But the thing is, what happens when your interests change? Or what happens when you, when you graduate out of a particular stage of life? Right? If I'm involved in a young adult group at, at 22, 25, can I still be in a young adult group if I'm 56? A bunch of my friends like to play frisbee golf or disc golf. We were, they were playing yesterday, and it's, it's fun. I'm not that great at it, but I'm out there playing with them. And they play all the time, and they, they meet the other people on, fr- on disc golf courses, and there's this chat that they're in, and they, they buy different discs, and they're, and they're like, it's really odd and obsessive, but it's okay. That's their thing. But listen, if they love Frisbee golf, they love talking about Frisbee golf, but if they go to a course, and one day one of them just happens to change their mind and say, hey, I want to start playing the tuba, and they just keep talking about playing the tuba, and the other guys are throwing discs, and they're like, what are you talking about? We're here to play Frisbee golf, not music. There's a, go- there's a group, I'm sure, for tuba players. Go there. Right? When your interests change, you're not really a part of that group anymore. And then we have this strange phenomenon that at this moment in history, because of social media and other factors, we are more connected than ever before in, our, in, in history. Just we're more connected than ever before. And yet studies consistently show that while we are more connected than ever, and despite the fact that it's easier to find people who have shared interests, we feel, as a society, we feel more alone and more unknown than any other time in history. Isn't that an interesting set of factors? 
more connected than ever, more alone and unknown than ever. How can that be? That doesn't make any sense, right? Greater connection should lead to greater sense of community and belonging, right? Wrong. Just because we are more connected than ever doesn't mean that we have the depth of relationship that we were meant to experience that we long for. Listen, if you have two, three hundred or two, three thousand friends on Facebook, it doesn't mean you're more known. We know that. That's because these kinds of communities can change based on circumstances. But here's the thing about Christianity and about Christians. Our community is not based on our circumstances or even our shared experiences. It's based on our shared life in Christ. Christian community is based on our shared life in Christ. And guess what? That never changes. You don't graduate out of that stage of life. That interest doesn't change because it's not an interest. It's an identity. It's a foundation. The good news of Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in Christ, that is the foundation for your life. And because of our shared life in Christ, because that is supernatural, not natural, right? Frisbee golf is something natural, right? Stage of life, that's natural. But because of our shared life in Christ, because it's supernatural as a gift from God, it's deeper and more enduring than any other connection you could have. Christian community is meant to be the most compelling community in the world, precisely because it's not based on shared interests or stage of life or background or skin color. I mean, just look around, for instance. Look around at this church. We are a diverse group, we are diverse in the things that we like, in the things that we dislike, in the, in the way we look, in where we live, and where we work, and what we enjoy. We are as diverse as you can be. Most of you are like, Frisbee golf, what in the world is that? That's okay. We're not connected by Frisbee golf, praise God. We're not connected. You know, this isn't a church where everyone looks the same, everyone thinks the same, everyone acts the same. We're, we're different even than the political spectrum. But Christ has joined us together in a community where there's both unconditional love and accountability. Unconditional love and accountability. That's why one of the things we say here at Grace over and over is this. At Grace, we will welcome you just the way you are. But we will love you enough not to leave you that way. We welcome you. You're welcome here. Christian, you're welcome here. If you're not a Christian, you're welcome to explore the Christian faith. Ask questions. Share your doubts. We welcome you. But we love you enough not to leave you that way. And we'll look at why the text proves that to be true. So what does this kind of community look like? What does Christian community look like? That's what Romans 12 talks about for us this morning. I have two points. The first point is going to take almost the entirety of the sermon and then the second point in closing. Here's point number one. Genuine love in action leads to genuine community. Genuine love in action leads to genuine community. Jesus said in John 13, this is how all people will know that you are my disciples if you share the same interests. Nope. If you live in the same community. Nope. If you have the same kind of jobs. Nope. This is how all people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. That's what he said. So how do we love Christ? We love one another. Verse 9 of Romans 12. Let love be genuine. 
This is actually, most, most commentators agree, this is kind of the heading of this whole section. Everything he says after this can be under the, the, the premise of let love be genuine. The word genuine there literally is the Greek word that says without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. It's the, the root word was used of actors when they were on stage and they would play a part. They would play act. And Paul says, let love, agape love, let this love you share among one another be the opposite of play acting. We live in a world that encourages us to present our best images of ourselves. With online platforms, it's so tempting and it's so easy to do this, isn't it? And if we only present the best of ourselves, if we only present this one side of ourselves, it's play acting. It's hypocrisy because it's not genuine. If it's genuine, fine. If, if you're genuinely enjoying your kids and you take a picture, fine. But if it looks like your whole life is beautiful flowers in a pristine kitchen and a, and a pot of, of beautiful fruit, if that looks like your life, it's probably not genuine. Paul says the overarching way to cultivate community in, in the church among Christians is to let love be genuine. Can you see why this is not natural but supernatural? Listen, we have, as at our church, I already said, we have people from all backgrounds and all walks of life, all kinds of interests and all kinds of struggles. Some who have gotten saved out of addiction and some who have gotten saved out of religion. All in the same group. And some who followed Jesus from ever since they were a child. When did you get saved? I don't know. I've always believed in Jesus as my Savior. Okay. And yet we're all adopted into this community of faith where we must learn to love one another genuinely. But that's risky. That's risky. It's easier to, to go to church or go to a group or go to a small group or go to a Bible study and put on a facade and make it seem like everything's okay. And I know why we do this. Because we either can't stand the idea that we're dependent on each other or it's a form of self-protection. Because we're afraid that if we really share what's going on in our lives with others, they will shun us or judge us or even reject us. But let me ask you, church, why, why should it be strange that we are still struggling? Should it be strange that your brother or sister may be dealing with sorrow that's, that's just gut-wrenching and, and a trial that's really, really hard? Is it, should it be strange if your brother confesses, I'm struggling with this particular sin? Is that strange? Are we not still battling against the world, the flesh, and the devil? All of us are going through really hard things, both sin and suffering. And yet as Christians, we remember we've been accepted by God in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith in Him alone. We've been declared righteous, where sins are forgiven. We just sang that. And that truth should set us free from the slavery of having to make ourselves look better than we are. This community should be where we are constantly reminded that it's okay to not be okay where we love one another so genuinely because in the gospel we know that even with all of our junk that we brought in this morning, God has forgiven us and declared us righteous. What needs to change for you to love others in this community genuinely? What needs to change? 
Do you need to, as we were just saying, do you need to offer forgiveness? Do you need to let go of a grudge? Do you need to be able to share the love of Christ with someone more practically, more, more tangibly? Do you need to be more open with your own sin? Listen, if you've never confessed sin to somebody else, I know it's hard, but you can kind of get in the mindset, well, I've never done it, and if I do it now, and, and then people look at me and look, look, I'm a pastor, and I've been pastoring for you know, 15 years, and if I share with someone that I'm struggling with a particular sin, then I'm, they're going to look weird, look, look at me like I'm weird, or, or they're going to judge me or think less of me, and so I should put up my best front. But actually, you know what that does? That hurts my own heart. And it hurts your heart, because we're not loving genuinely. Gospel-centered community creates an environment where it's safe for people to be honest about their lives and to still be loved. And yet, look what Paul says next. Because he knows what we're thinking. He knows what you're thinking because what he says next, it's a safe place to be loved, but it's not a place where we support unrepentant sin. Let love be genuine, Paul says. Abhor or hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. If we're going to love one another genuinely, we must be willing to help each other recognize sin, confess sin, and fight sin. He uses one of the strongest words for hate there. Abhor what is evil. He's not just saying in the world. You say, well, yeah, abhor what is evil in the world. He's talking about community. He means abhor the evil that is in our hearts. It is not loving to let our brothers and sisters continue doing evil. If you think that is loving, that is evil. Sin is evil, and it has no rightful place in our hearts, in our lives. And so we are to hate sin enough that that we help each other put sin to death. But here's the challenge. We have blind spots. We all have blind spots, area where we struggle with sin that others notice that I don't notice. Just like if I'm driving in a car, I got my rear view mirror, I got my side view mirror, but I still have a blind spot because if I turn, there's still a place where that car could be where I can't see them. And the only way that I know is they honk their horn and realize, whoa, okay, all right, somebody's there. Paul states in the context of community, we need to love one another so deeply And hate evil so passionately that we're willing to lovingly help one another with our blind spots. It is not loving to see a blind spot in someone's life and say nothing. If I see my young son going near to the stove and we have a pot of boiling water, and if I see him putting his hand into the pot of boiling water, I could say, I know it's dangerous, but he seems so happy. I mean, he's literally smiling, right? Maybe he thinks there's cookies in there. I don't know what he thinks there, but but he's happy. I don't want to disturb that. If I say that and I do that, guess what that makes me? A terrible parent. And it would make a terrible community if we allowed one another to do that. This kind of confronting sin happens best in the context of safe and trusting relationships. A group of people that you've given permission to do this, like a small group or a Bible study or close friends that you've been building in the church. A group of people where you can help one another see the sin in your heart, turn from that sin and cling to what is good. Notice it's not just a turning from sin, it's a clinging to what is good. It's pursuing holiness. I get it. 
this kind of love takes a crazy amount of courage and vulnerability, and many of you have already written me off. So I'll, I'll admit, I struggle with it too. I hate it when someone points out a blind spot to me. Even when I invite them to do so. And I hate pointing it out in others. But this is what God has called us into. This is true community. And this will be most compelling. Verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. I'll do one another in showing honor. The kind of love we're called to show each other is a kind of love shared among family members. Brotherly affection. That's Philadelphia. Right? Brotherly love. Family love. Sibling love. Why? He's saying, as, as Paul says over and over in the New Testament epistles, the church is a spiritual family. We're not just congregants. We are brothers and sisters. In his book, C.S. Lewis, the book called The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis talks about the different kinds of love in the New Testament. Right? Friendship love, uh, romantic love, agape love, and then family love. And he says the first three kinds of love, and he talks about each one, friendship love, romantic love, and agape love, require some kind of strength or merit in the lover or the person doing the loving. Right? Friendship love, there's some kind of connection. There, there needs to be something that, that, that draws you to them. Uh, romantic love, there's something that draws you to them, draws you, connects you to them. Even in agape love, it's, it's really the love of the person that, that, that pours out on somebody else, that makes that commitment. But there's something unique about sibling love, family love, because you don't get to choose your siblings. Yeah, I know what that laugh means. And that's what makes family so unique. You didn't get to choose those in your family that you are now called to love for the rest of your lives. You get to choose your friends, you get to choose romantic love, and you get to choose who you're going to love unconditionally. But you don't get to choose who was born into your family and they're your brother or your sister. And guess what? You don't get to choose who's a part of the family of God. That's, that's the point. That's why Paul, I think, uses this, this language of brotherly affection, the family love. By the way, in New Testament times, in this time in history, no other religion, no other philosophy system claimed the kind of love among a family applied to that group, to that religious group. That would have been considered heretical, crazy. And Paul says, this, this is the best way to describe how connected we are. You know, Christian, Jesus didn't just die to rescue you from, from the curse and condemnation of sin. He died to adopt you into a family, and he died to tear down the walls between us so that we can live together as a family. Do you realize how intimately connected you are to the person sitting next to you who might be radically different in their interests and where they live and their stage of life and how much money they make and all the kinds of things? Uh, it doesn't matter. But that person is so intimately connected to you. It's they are family. You're going to live with them for the rest of your life. Eternally. So, how do we love with one another with brotherly affection? Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. What's the, what's the theological basis of this? Look up at verse 5. 
So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. You see what Paul is, is, is setting the stage for in his teaching of how to live in community? He's saying, look, we are not just members of Christ's body, we are members of each other. I don't quite get that entirely. We are so connected, uh, we, we are so bound together that we are called to love one another based on this truth, we're members one of another. And unless you're convinced of this foundational truth, you'll never love one another in the ways that Paul teaches here. It will be too inconvenient, too sacrificial, and too disruptive for your life. But if we really believe that we are members one of another, it will only make sense to live out these commands because I realize that, that Joe is not just someone who has the same beliefs as me. We are members one of another. He's my brother. How he lives affects me and how I live affects him. Because we're family. And that's why Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. Love doesn't just confront sin. Love eagerly seeks to lift one another up, to honor one another. Right? If some of us have an aversion to calling out sin, I think some of us also have an aversion to calling out the good that we see in each other and bestowing honor to each other. Our culture has mastered, I mean really mastered, this, this, um, this ability to shame people, right? We're really good at shaming people. We have got that down. But we're terrible at showing honor. You know where I've seen this best? In historically black churches. I served at a historically black church in D.C. for four years, and what I witnessed was something very different than, than church, the church that I grew up in. What I witnessed is that they had this ability, this desire to lift one another up, to honor each other. At every, every gathering, at everything that we did, there was this desire. How do we honor the people in our community? How do we honor so and sister so-and-so, brother so-and-so? How do we honor these leaders and these servants over here? They just had this ability and this desire. It, just, it was drawn for their love of Christ, we want to outdo one another in showing honor. I just, I think we have much to learn from our African-American brothers and sisters in this area. How can, how can you, I'm asking you personally, how can you grow in giving honor to your brothers and sisters by recognizing the good in their lives? Verse 11. <clears throat> Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Basically, love serves. That's what he's saying here. Love serves. Lazy, laziness is the enemy of love. Apathy is the enemy of love. Paul says, be fervent in spirit. The picture of the word fervent is a, is a bubbling, boiling pot, ironically. In other words, something that's moving, something where there's kinetic energy, something where you're doing something. He's saying, Christian, get moving. Serve the Lord. Don't be a still pot of water. Be a bubbling, boiling pot of water. Get moving. People say all the time, pastors, you're always harping on us to serve and volunteer in ministries. Listen, we're not trying to punish you. I promise you. We don't get any reward for getting more volunteers. We are seeking your good. We want you to experience the, the incredible blessings of serving the Lord in this church. When my five-year-old comes home 
and shows me what he's learning at Sunday school last week. And he, and, he t- and he could tell me this in his own words. We learned about the book of Revelation and about the letters God wrote to different churches. And he has this little made-up scroll that, that you can unro- unravel and close up and it's got a little knot and he's holding it to show kind of the letters that, Paul wrote, that, that John wrote to the churches. I, I marvel at the devotion and love of those teachers. I would have never come up with that. How do you teach Revelation to five-year-olds? I probably wouldn't scare them with the beast is going to come down and no. So praise God, teachers, don't do that. Listen, you'll never regret investing in the kingdom of God by serving others. Never. It may, you may not get immediate rewards and it may involve a sacrifice of time and energy, but you're making an eternal investment. We have a ministry fair next week. We're going to talk about serving next week. I just want to ask you to pray even now. Prayerfully consider how you will live out verse 11 as ministries get underway this fall. Verse 12. How do we do this, right? It's already felt like there's a lot that's he's piling it on. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope. The word hope is the confident expectation that Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead and is now seated on the throne, will soon return and take us with him to be with him in glory. That's our hope. He says this hope is the source of our joy and this hope fuels our patience in the midst of trials and tribulation. And the power source that will keep our hope strong and keep our joy alive is prayer. Be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. Dedication to prayer is hard. I've never talked to a Christian who says, I have the best prayer life. I'm killing it in prayer. We all feel inadequate in prayer. I think that's why Paul includes the teaching here in the context of community because he's not saying be constant in prayer just on your own. He's saying be constant in prayer in community. He's talking about praying together. Listen, if you've never been to a Wednesday night prayer meeting outside as safe as you can be at Gyre Place, you are truly missing out. There have been beautiful times of heartfelt, pouring out our hearts to God. There's singing. There's people who are praying in different languages. And, and, and it's just so sweet. We've seen God answering prayers through that time. If you, have, if you haven't been to our prayer meeting in a while, or if you haven't been to church inside in a while, I would like to ask you to consider, what would prevent you from gathering with your church family outside to pray in obedience to his word. How do we love in community? Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Verse 13, and contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In other words, Paul says, put your money where your mouth is. He says, you can show honor and affection to each other, But if you're not willing to actually share your resources with each other, that's hypocritical love. That's fake love. He's saying real love shares with others. That's what families do. Listen, my kids came home, or they they get a list from their schools. This school, I love the school, and the school says, "Here's the list of school supplies you need." And in my mind, you would think maybe four or five things: a binder, pencils, you know, pen, 
and a backpack. No, there's like 85 things on that list. <laughs> and a part of me wants to say, no, I'm not going to get those for you. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't know. Yeah, I just, but no, I love my daughter and my kids. And so we buy all 85 things joyfully. Dane Beth buys them joyfully. <laughs> love compels us to provide for our children. Do you know that through this year, this budget year from last September to right now, through your generosity, church, you have been able to provide over $41,000 to meet physical needs through our benevolence fund. That's things like paying rent, electric bills, groceries, car payments, counseling. That is extraordinary. This is an area where our church shines. And I praise God for you. And I want to honor you, church, for your generosity. Maybe individually, though, you're still struggling to give generously. Maybe this is a nudge in your heart that you've needed from God to start giving to a local church to meet the spiritual and physical needs of a church family and the community and the world. And he says, oh, by the way, as you're sharing with others, seek to show hospitality. Hospitality literally means love of stranger. That's what the word literally means, to love a stranger. The idea is spending time with people who are different, people who you don't know, people who may look different than you in skin color or stage of life or their economic status or they're just people you simply don't know. And notice Paul doesn't say, show hospitality, which would be fine. He says, seek to show hospitality. The word seek means go out of your way, be dogmatic in showing hospitality, in welcoming people who are different, people you don't know. When is the last time you actively sought out someone you didn't know in church to introduce yourself to them and said hello? If, if it's been a while, or if you're just coming back into church and you're like, oh, with COVID, I, I get it, right? You can put on a mask, but go say hello to someone. Or stand six feet apart and say hello to someone. Or wait until they're outside and say hello to someone. I'm not making the rules. I'm just saying, I'm giving you all kinds of ways to do it. When's the last time you had a church member over to your house for a meal to get to know them better? You say, well, I've had neighbors over. I've had my best friends over. Great. I'm talking about someone you just don't know that well. And you said, would you want to have a meal together? Or would you want to go out for coffee or go out for ice cream? We'll sit outside. Let me broaden this to a global level. We all see the horrifying images of what's happening in Afghanistan. And I have no desire or expertise to be able to delve into the geopolitical debate of what's happening there. But here's what I do know. There are thousands of Afghanis who have served alongside of our military men and women and has served as translators and have supported our efforts there. And now their lives are at risk simply because they have worked alongside the international community and they will be seeking refuge in other nations. So the question to us is, will we as the church live in obedience to God's word and seek to show hospitality? Will we make our voices heard as a church and, and open up our communities and open up our homes and open up our hearts to these strangers? It's okay, you can be quiet. You can let that sink in. Finally, in verses 14 to 16, there are several final commands that are all rooted in humility. Humility. The ability to bless those who persecute you or hurt you, 
takes incredible love and humility. In a world where if you do anything wrong, you get canceled now. You get publicly shamed and then you're done. In a world that, that in, 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 on, the, on the good side, is crying out for justice, for wrongs. As Christians, we have this opportunity to, to model that our faith is rooted not only in justice, true justice, but also in forgiveness. Because Christianity is a faith of second chances. Christianity is a faith where we sing, I'm forgiven. Forgiveness. Our ability to forgive those who hurt us and speak ill of us will be a compelling testimony in a world that is losing the ability to forgive. It's a diminishing quality. And then Paul says in verse 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Love enters into so deeply the experiences of, of others that it leads us to truly rejoice with those who have had good news. When someone gets a raise, someone buys a new house, someone has a new baby, someone gets married, someone gets into the school that they wanted to, uh, someone makes the team, can we rejoice with those who have the things that you yourself would want? Can you rejoice with a brother who gets a raise but you didn't get a raise? With someone who got married and you're not yet married? There's some who've written and said, you know, rejoicing with those who rejoice is actually harder than sorrowing with those who sorrow. But the love that Paul calls us here is a love that enters into each other's sorrows. A love that feels, doesn't just acknowledge the pain, but a love that feels the pain that someone else is dealing with. The sorrow of loneliness or depression or a disappointing diagnosis or the loss of a loved one. Can I just say, if you, if you write in your Bible, I would highlight, underline verse 15. Romans 12, 15 is the heart of the Christian life. It is what we should be doing all the time, church. Celebrating and sorrowing and often at the same time. We're celebrating 56 years of, of, of marriage to this, this morning with the Caldwells, and yet we're sorrowing with those who are grieving. At the same time, we have to do it. And then finally, verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Here's what Paul's saying in verse 16 as he wraps up this one section here. He's saying, contrary to popular belief, the greatest threat to our loving community, to living in a loving community, the greatest threat to living in a loving community is not our political or cultural differences. It's not our differences in age or socioeconomic background. The greatest threat to living in a genuine, loving community is pride. You say, no, if they only had a different political view, we could be closer. No, if you only were able to lower your pride and love someone who's different, then there would be a loving community. And then maybe you could have conversations with that person about why they hold a different view. And maybe, by God's grace, you'll sharpen each other. That's not going to happen. If we're, if we're saying, I'm right, you're wrong. The greatest threat right now to the church is not things on the outside. It's the pride on the inside. That's, going for all, that, that's creeping up in all of us. He says, don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Literally, hang out with people who are lowly. Let them teach you what it's like 
to be so accepted in Christ, you don't have to always be right. You don't have to always be proven right. You don't have to always get your way. You don't have to always put others down. You can love others who are different simply for the fact that you're, they're your siblings that you, that you didn't ask for, but they're yours now. And guess what? You're theirs. Let me just ask you this. If church looked like this, if the church could live these things out, who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Right? If, we, if this is what Grace Baptist Church was defined by, if this was our vision, wouldn't, wouldn't anyone in this community want people who rejoice with them and, and weep with them and encourage them and love them and share with them? But the big question is where do we get the ability to do this? Right? Some of you are like, wow, it's command after command after. It's like piling on shame. I feel terrible at all this. How do I get the ability to do this? Lesson two, as we wrap up. The only way to love like this is to be loved like this. The only way for us to love like this is to be loved like this. What do I mean? Do you know that every one of these commands was lived out perfectly by Jesus? He loved genuinely, without hypocrisy. He never put on a front, never acted like he was something that he wasn't. He hated what is evil. He, was, he overturned the money changers. He, he, he confronted and challenged the Pharisees. He treated strangers as family. He showed honor to those in society who are marginalized and discarded by touching lepers and, and eating with Samaritans. He outdid others in showing honor. He was fervent in spirit, serving the Lord with every making moment of his life. He, Jesus was constant in prayer, enduring all kinds of tribulation. He always found his joy in the Father's plan. He, he contributed to others. He shared freely. He fed the 5,000. He did it multiple times. He blessed those who persecuted him. When on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He rejoiced with those who were rejoicing by celebrating a wedding at Cana. And then he was gutted to the core when he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus was never haughty, but he associated at every turn with the lowly. And he humbled himself to die on a cross. Jesus lived this teaching out perfectly when you and I couldn't. And what did we do to the one man, the God-man, who lived this out? What did we do to him? We killed him. We nailed him to a cross. Even though he never sinned, he never did anything wrong, he was perfect, Jesus lived the life you and I should have lived this, but couldn't live. And then he went to the cross to die the death we should have died, bearing all of our sin, all of our evil. He died because our love is often hypocritical and fake. I just want to say, no matter if you're a Christian here or not, I need you to hear this. Jesus died for you. Because he loves you. He loves you. He loves you more than you can imagine. He loves you with an everlasting love, Isaiah tells us. He loves you with a love that is genuine and extravagant and, and gracious and full of life. And he invites you to experience a forgiveness and an unconditional love that will change you from the inside out. 
You see, when you, when you join to the one who died for you and rose from the dead, who has resurrection power, when you join your life to his, he gives you his resurrection life, his resurrection power. And now, at every turn, you can, you can seek to live out what he calls you to do. God never commands us what he, does, what he doesn't empower us to do. And when you're adopted into God's family, you become his son or daughter, you're knighted, you're knighted to Christ in a supernatural way, and he shines his life, and he shines his love through you. How do you live out these verses? The power comes when you appreciate the magnitude of God's love for you. Your love for others, our love for others, is the visible evidence that we understand the love of our invisible God. It's when you know that you've been loved like this, really love like this, that he does a supernatural work in your heart and you go out and you want to love like this. Imperfect as it may be, you want to love like this. You want love to be genuine. You want to serve and humble yourself. You want to do what God calls us to do because you know you have been loved to a greater degree than ever possible. Do you need to trust Christ today? Do you need to accept a love that can never fail you? A love that is so genuine Turn from sin and trust Christ as your Savior today, right now. Christian, do you need to take steps into this kind of community? Do you need to put yourself in an environment where you can actually figure out, what, what do I, how do I rejoice with someone and weep with them? I have to know what they're going through. That's why we're doing a small group connect right after this. We want every person here to consider being in a small group, to be able to do life with people so love can be genuine. Which one of these commands do you need to ask God for grace to live out more fully today? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you give us your word as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God, I, I feel the... the the weightiness of these commands, the weightiness of this teaching, it's just rapid-fire commands, and it, and it feels like, Lord, over, it feels overwhelming. Maybe some are wondering, where do I even start? God, I pray that we would start with where we ended, that we would know your love for us, that we would sense it and experience it and rest in it, that we would be so filled with your love that we can't help but pouring that love into others. Lord, I, I love this church. I love my church. And I know that we have this unique opportunity to shine in this world. And to shine not by trying to prove that our interests or our perspectives or our um, our points of view are correct, but to shine by showing we have a Savior who has adopted us and made us his own so that we don't have to put up a front, so that we can be unconditionally loved and mutually accountable. God, show, show us how this can be compelling and make us compelling to a watching world who is desperate for forgiveness and love and a love that doesn't just accept you the way you are, but a love that says we can, we can see that God has made you and has made you into something that's even better than what you are now. God, as we enter into communion, 
As we share this, may we be reminded yet again of what you did to adopt us into your family. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.